1: On Friday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported a major job spike of 235,000 jobs in February, dropping the unemployment rate to 4.7%. According to CNBC, the good news didn't stop there. Average hourly earnings bumped 2.8% on an annualized basis, construction jumped by 58,000 jobs, and manufacturing added 28,000 jobs. The U6 unemployment rate, which includes the underemployed, is now at a recent low of 9.2%. Fully 326,000 new full-time positions were added to the market. So, Why the boom? Analysts say that Trump's election is indeed the reason. But it's not just President Trump's election. It's the fact that Republicans hold Congress as well and are looking to pare back regulations. While the media focus on Trump's Twitter imbecilities, the markets are far more focused on the fact that a predictable economic backdrop has finally been created for the market. Now a few caveats. The labor force participation rate decreased in February, but it remains historically weak at just 63%. We would have to gain about 10 million new jobs in order to maintain this unemployment rate with the same labor force participation rate we had in 2000. It is important to recognize that despite the weakness of President Obama's economic recovery, Trump did inherit a growing economy and one with significant breakout potential. You can't ignore the same unemployment statistics you used to rip Obama and retain credibility. You can't cite the stock market as evidence of Trumpian. Genius if you ignored it for eight years under Obama. Trump and his allies have touted the stock market jump since his election, but the reality is that the stock market boosted significantly and continuously during the Obama years. President Obama's recovery was the weakest in modern American history, but that's because his job-killing regulations and penalties on investment drove people to sock away money and invest in stock buybacks rather than investing in new research and development or hiring. So how robust is the market's confidence in Trump? We'll find out in the next few months as the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates, as Congress struggles to move forward with the tax restructuring. We'll also find out if the systemic problems plaguing the job market, new technology replacing jobs, the movement toward the service-based economy rather than manufacturing, if it somehow bucks all the long-term trends for the last decade and a half. That's unlikely in the years to come. But there's no question, markets are more confident than they've been for eight years because finally they believe they won't be hit over the head by an unexpected economic sledgehammer from the left side of the aisle. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. I should note here, by the way, that it's always very dangerous to talk about attributing economic movements to particular presidents or politics because there is a lag effect. You know, the fact is that. President Reagan, for the first couple of years of his administration, had a very weak economy. That wasn't because of Reagan. That was because of a lag effect from Carter. Bill Clinton had a very strong economy when he came into office. That wasn't because of Clinton. That was because of a lag effect from George H.W. Bush's economy. So, to try and attribute all of the current economic goings-on to Donald Trump is a little bit overwrought. I think that consumer confidence is a lot higher because of Trump. I think that the markets are optimistic because of Trump. The stock market particularly thinks there's breakout potential. But... You know, everybody needs to hold off a little bit before attributing all sorts of great God genius to Trump because the markets are doing great, because the fact is, it's not quite that simple using these sorts of metrics, is what generates the false statistics you hear from Democrats all the time about the idea that jobs do better under Democrats, which ignores, again, that lag effect and also ignores who's in control of Congress. I think that if the markets are in a comfortable position, it's because they feel comfortable that nobody's going to do anything truly terrible to the markets right now. But we'll talk more about that in just a second, plus the continued failure of the rollout of Trumpcare. But first, we have to say thank you to our friends over at Helix Sleep. So, My wife and I like Helix Sleep so much that when Helix Sleep sent us a mattress and we tried it out, we actually dumped a more expensive mattress and moved it into the other room because Helix Sleep mattresses are so good. So you go to helixsleep.com and they ask you a series of questions. If you like the bed hard or soft, which side you like to sleep on, how you like to sleep, do you like the mattress to be sort of breathable or do you like it to be warmer? And then they send you a mattress in the mail. And if you don't like it, you can try it for 100 days. If you don't like it, then they will. Sh- you can send it right back, 100% refund, no questions asked. It is fantastic. Just open the box. It inflates right in front of you because it's a foam mattress. And it's really good. Not only is it good, they also have technology that allows them, to using using their proprietary algorithms, they can, they can actually create a bed that's more specific to you. And if you have a spouse, then it is specific to both sides of the bed. So you can have different firmness or, or different breathability in the mattress on the two sides of the bed. Uh, really, they're fantastic. HelixSleep.com. You know, I'm somebody who doesn't tend to get an, as much sleep as I should, so when I do sleep, I want it to be comfortable. HelixSleep makes that happen. HelixSleep.com. You get $50 off your order right now. HelixSleep.com. ben get $50 off your order. It's also cheaper than competitive marketing firms out there. Uh, if, you, if you went to a mattress store, it's a lot more expensive than going to HelixSleep.com, and HelixSleep is better than they are because it's personalized to you. HelixSleep.com. Slash Ben, get fifty dollars off your order, helix sleep.com. Slash Ben, make sure you use the slash Ben so that they know that we sent you, and also so you get that discount. Okay, so the big story continues to be the rollout of Obama, of, of the Obamacare repeal and replacement, Ryan care, Trump care. As I said yesterday, I'm calling it Trump care, and the reason that I'm calling it Trump care is specifically because we called it Obamacare, we didn't call Pelosi care or, or you know, the or Schumer care or or uh, Harry Reid care. It was called Obamacare, so now this is Trump care. So the rollout of Trump care is going poorly. The reason it's going poorly is because nobody is very committed to this Trump care replacement bill because the bill isn't very good. We discussed all the problems with the bill before. Paul Ryan is the only one out there really stumping for it because Paul Ryan has the worst job in the universe. Being Speaker of the House with a fractious Republican caucus is not an easy job. It's particularly not an easy job when you think that your job is to pass things. Now, this is something that has bothered me for a long time. The job of Congress is not necessarily to pass things. In fact, when Congress decides it is imperative that they pass things, usually you end up with a crap sandwich of a bill. What you really ought to do is pass a bunch of little bills. Like this is, this is, people have asked me, what's the constitutional amendment that you would pursue if you could pursue one? I would say, no bills longer than three pages, all in plain English. Right. That, that seems to me the way to do the bill. And it would be great if there was like an explainer. So instead, of the, all, all of these bills have to be written in legal language. So they'll say, remove the word in provision four D of this uh, of this separate section of the U.S. code. It'd be great if there was an explainer in the back that said, here's what that actually does, you know, that would be useful. And then Americans could actually see what the representatives are doing instead of having a 120-page bill dumped on them with no notice and no explanation, and that bears a lot of confusion because they keep saying it's stage one and they're stage two and three, and we don't know what stages two and three are. Yeah, this is a bad way to do business, and it's disappointing to me that Republicans keep participating in it because they want to prove that they can get something done. I'm less interested in Congress doing something than in Congress doing something good. But Paul Ryan was out there Basically making a presentation yesterday, he rolled up his sleeves and he did a a presentation that is the most entertaining thing that you will see anywhere uh, outside of H&R Block, because Paul Ryan is basically a really boring accountant. So here's Paul Ryan talking about the American Health Care Act, which is not the Affordable Care Act. It's the American Health Care Act. And he put up a TV screen behind him and he jabbered about it for a bit.
2: We as Republicans have been waiting seven years to do this. We as Republicans who fought the creation of this law and accurately predicted that it would not work ran for office in 2010, in 2012, in 2014, and in 2016 on a promise that we would, if given the ability, we would repeal and replace this law. How many people running for Congress and the Senate did you hear say that? How many times did you hear President Donald Trump when he was candidate Donald Trump, say that. This is the closest we will ever get to repealing and replacing Obamacare. The time is here, the time is now, this is the moment, and this is the closest this will ever happen. It really comes down to a binary choice. We now have the ability, through the budget rules that we have in the Senate, with our three-pronged approach, to actually make good on our word.
1: Okay, here's what I hate, and here's why I'm groaning and grunting and making all sorts of animal noises. Okay, the reason that I'm upset about this is I am very, very sick of Republicans telling us that we have a binary choice. It's always a stupid, damn binary choice. It's a binary choice. It's either this bill or you get Obamacare. It's either Trump or you get Hillary. It's always, at least with Trump and Hillary, there was an argument because it actually is a binary election. But here... You can propose any bill that you possibly want, right? I mean, here it could be tons of different bills. You could you could do it the way I want it. You can do a piecemeal. You can have a different bill completely. You can go back to the drawing board. You can have a conciliation meeting between Trump and McConnell and Ryan and hash this thing out. You could have uh, you, you could you could just pass the repeal and not the replace. There are tons of things you can do. I'm so tired of Republicans trying to cram down crappy policy by saying it's a binary choice. It's bi- it's either this or the highway. Well, guess what? It isn't. Guess what? It isn't. Go back to the drawing board and do better. Stop sucking. And when he talks about, when Paul Ryan says, you know, the Senate rules prevent us from doing more than this, because if we do more than this, then it violates the Senate rules. So use Mike Pence to overrule the the committee rules chair, right? The way that this works is that reconciliation rules allow you, through reconciliation without having to meet the 60-vote threshold, reconciliation rules allow you to mess around with the specific provisions of Obamacare, but you're not supposed to go much beyond that. Okay, well... If you don't like that, then you can either invoke the nuclear option or you can just have Mike Pence preside over the rules and overrule the Senate chair when it comes to the rules. So, no, there are a bunch of different options that happen here. But again, we just keep hearing. I'm sick of this blackmail. I'm sick of Republicans blackmailing you. I'm sick of Republicans blackmailing me. I'm sick of this routine where it's we came up with this crap sandwich of a bill. And if you don't get this, you don't get anything. Screw you. You work for me. Okay, Paul Ryan works for me. These Congress people work for me, and they work for you. And it's not their job to tell you what options are on the table. All options are on the table because we are the consumer. We are the customer. We are the people who have rights. We are the people who put these people in their job. We are the ones who create the job description. When I hire somebody at Daily Wire, I create the job description. They don't create the job description. Paul Ryan does not create his own job description. He doesn't get to tell me what the options are. Okay, the options are what we say they are, and if we don't like these options, go by, go get some new options. I'm so sick of this. And the reason I'm sick of this is because, again, it's used to take conservatism and throw it out by the side of the road and then say, well, you know, this is the best we could do. This is the best we could do. I've been living my entire life under Republicans who say this is the best we can do. And very rarely is it the best they can do. Usually it's just some sort of crappy halfway bill that doesn't do what it's supposed to do and leaves in place most of the provisions that Democrats get. Why is it that when Democrats get power, they immediately ram through bills that they love, that their base loves? When Republicans get power, they immediately start trying to ram through bills they think will make them more politically popular, and then they don't even succeed in being politically popular. It's so stupid. You know, George W. Bush did the same thing. He said, oh, Medicare Part D, you know, this is what you're going to get. And then we did it. And did it make George W. Bush wildly popular? He didn't win re-election in 2004 based on Medicare Part D. He won re-election in 2004 based on the fact that he was a wartime president. If he was not a wartime president, very little doubt that George W. Bush loses in 2004. And it wasn't campaign finance reform that put him over the top. And it wasn't Medicare Part D that put him over the top. Every Republican who does this routine where they say, well, you know, if we just do this thing that's sort of half-leftism, and that's the best we can do, why is that always the best we can do? It's so frustrating. And not only that, now they're trying to jam it through. Now they're trying to jam it through. Okay, so here is Jim Acosta on CNN. He's right. Paul Ryan is trying to jam this stupid bill through that nobody likes. Seriously, nobody likes this bill. The only people who like this bill, apparently, are Trump and Ryan. And Trump is escaping all criticism because I know we have to be very careful about President Trump. We must not offend the great one. We must never say anything bad about President Trump. We have to say that it's all on Paul Ryan. Donald Trump is behind this thing. Donald Trump wants this thing. Donald Trump wants this thing because this thing is half leftism. Hey, Donald Trump is not a hardcore conservative. He's never been a hardcore conservative, particularly on this issue. During the campaign, he basically came out at one point for single payer before walking it back. So this idea that they, this is all Paul Ryan's fault is just a bunch of asinine nonsense. If Paul Ryan put in front of him a bill that just repealed Obamacare, there's no guarantee that Trump would actually sign it. Because he'd be afraid that there'd be blowback for all the people who would, quote-unquote, lose their, their insurance under Medicaid from, from Obamacare.
0: Uh, the yeah. White House Press Secretary... Sean Spicer saying we're not jamming this uh, bill through, this health care bill through. Well, when you have uh, committees working almost through the night, uh, when you have uh, members of Congress being asked to weigh in on uh, a proposal that has not been scored by the Congressional Budget Office, I think you would have a lot of people up on Capitol. And also, by the way, you have a lot of the stakeholders that were involved in the uh, formulation of Obamacare, doctors, hospitals, uh, and so on. They really have not been part of this process. That, that pretty much meets the definition of jamming things through uh, so the White House may be saying we're not jamming it through, but they are jamming it through at this point. They they want this on a fast track because they know how incredibly d- difficult this is going to be with so many... Well, conf- CNN
1: is wildly biased, and they are, but, and Jim Acosta is wildly biased, and he is. But what he's saying here is actually true, okay? Obamacare took a year to roll out, a year, and there was vast debate over it, which is why it almost died. It's why Scott Brown ended up being a senator in Massachusetts to replace Ted Kennedy, because the American people didn't want Obamacare. Democrats pushed it through over the objections of the American people. And then they lost the House and then they lost the Senate and then they lost the presidency. Okay, but Republicans are jamming this thing through. They are. It's been like two weeks. This thing came out, what, on Monday? On Monday, this thing came out and they're talking about voting on it, I think, in two weeks, three weeks. I mean, come on, come on. And it's, it's a garbage bill. It's filled with garbage. It's just it's so foolish on every level. And it's not just Acosta saying it, right? Tom Cotton is saying people are upset. We're jamming this thing through.
2: I'm with the American people and the promises I made to Arkansans that we're going to reduce the cost of their health care and make it accessible and give them more control over their health care choices. Look, there, there are a lot of Republicans who are saying these exact same things in private. Frankly, some of them on Steve Scalise's whip team are saying the same thing. I'm simply saying in public what many Republicans are voicing, that the legislation as it's written one, probably cannot pass the Senate, but but two, would not solve the problems of our health care system, problems that Obamacare made worse. I think the American people care much more that we solve those problems than that we meet some kind of arbitrary legislative deadline.
1: Okay, and that's exactly right. What he's saying here is exactly right. Tom Cotton, by the way, is a major ally of President Trump. So when he says this, what he's really doing is he's he's force aging what is actually going to happen here. What's actually going to happen here is this thing is going to go down in flames. Trump's going to blame everybody. And then we're going to get stuck with Obamacare. Now, I'm going to talk about the dangers of that in just a second. But first, we have to say thank you to our sponsors over at the U.S. Concealed Carry Association. So, if you're somebody who worries deeply about your Second Amendment rights, who wants to make sure that not only do you have the right to conceal and carry, but also that you have the firearms education and training that you need, self-defense insurance, they make sure that if, God forbid, you have to shoot somebody in self-defense, that you have a legal apparatus that's available to you, because just because you did the right thing doesn't mean that the legal system won't come after you. That's what USCCA is for. And right now, just to Straight, you know, how pro-gun they are. The USCCA is going to buy 10 of my listeners the gun of their dream. So right now, if you go to defendmyfamilynow.com, defendmyfamilynow.com, you can enter in what is basically a sweepstakes, 10 chances to win $1,500 for any gun that you want. No restrictions. You can pick any gun, any brand, any caliber. Defendmyfamilynow.com to enter. Super cool offer. Go there, give them your information, and then you have a chance to win $1,500 for any gun that you want. Ten chances, actually, to win, because there are ten people who are going to get this thing. 1500 bucks for any gun you want. DefendMyFamilyNow.com. Again, I don't think there's any more important right in the, in the Bill of Rights than the Second Amendment. And USCCA makes sure that the Second Amendment is upheld and that you have all the resources that you need in order to ensure that the Second Amendment uh, maintains its power uh, and maintains its applicability to you and your family. The USCCA, great organization. DefendMyFamilyNow.com to enter. DefendMyFamily. Now.com. They are changing the game for responsible gun owners, making sure they have all the education, care, and protection that you need. DefendMyFamilyNow.com for that chance to win fifteen hundred dollars toward a toward a gun of your choice, which is super cool. Okay, well, I want to talk just briefly here about the fact that this thing probably will go down and and what the plan is after this. So Rand Paul is is also saying that this thing is going to go down in flames. Here is Rand Paul saying, you know, you've basically been, uh, Republicans have been fibbing about what's in this thing.
0: It is a conundrum. and That's why we should vote on the one thing that we all agreed on. About a year ago, we voted on clean repeal. We don't agree on replacement, but we could have a separate vote on Medicaid expansion. And I'm guessing Democrats and big government Republicans would probably come together and find that they will expand Medicaid. Many conservatives aren't going to vote for that mainly because it doesn't work. We're, we're dishonest in the accounting. We can't pay for the current Medicare; it's 35 trillion dollars in the hole. The current Medicaid is is unfunded, and then we're going to add new entitlement programs to that. If you really want to have Medicaid for everyone and all these states, you should be honest with the people and you should double or triple the state income tax and double or triple the, the sales tax. Now, I'm not for that, but that's what it would take if you were honest. Instead, we say, "Oh, federal government's going to pay for it. Federal government has no money. We borrow a million dollars a minute. So it's just dishonest accounting.
1: Okay, so Senator Paul is exactly right here. And this is the problem. Republicans have decided that they are going to get in the ballgame of more efficient government. Okay, The, the conservatism, the new conservatism isn't about less government. It's about more efficient government with the same exact mandate as the Democrats? No. No, it's be- it's bound to fail and it should fail. Now, What this leaves is a backup strategy. And to hear about the backup strategy, which is going to be basically let Obamacare stay in place, we'll talk about that, but you have to be a subscriber over at DailyWire.com. $8 a month gets you the subscription to DailyWire.com. Plus, you get an annual subscription. Uh, You you get a free copy of The Arroyo, which is a a free DVD copy of a fictional film set on the southern border. Really compelling, kind of an old-school Western set on the southern border. The Arroyo, you get a copy of that. And uh, obviously, we're starting the Shapiro store pretty soon. I, I assume that we will be selling Michael number one best-selling book, Reasons to Vote Democrat. Uh, I assume that will be part of the Shapiro store at at some point here, but uh, go to dailywire.com right now to subscribe. Plus, you can be part of the mailbag. We're doing mailbag today. uh, And uh, if you want to send in your live questions and have them answered and have your life be made just incredibly great because you had your question answered by yours truly, go to dailywire.com right now and subscribe or to listen later on iTunes or SoundCloud. We are the top conservative podcast in the nation. So Trump is basically saying that if this thing fails, this is a backup strategy, let it fail, let Obamacare stay in place, let Obamacare fail, and then everything will be hunky-dory. I'm not sure this works. Now, I think that Democrats don't know what to do with it, and we'll talk about the Democratic strategy in a moment, but I don't know that this works for Republicans. It's hard to make the case. Give me more Republican votes so I can do more nuns, so I can do more non-stuff. so I can do less, right? I need more Republican votes so that I can not give you more of a plan. Right? I think that's that's kind of a loser uh, electorally. It's hard to say to people, you gave me a majority in the House and the Senate. You gave me the presidency. We didn't do anything with our key promise to repeal and replace. And now I want you to give me more Republicans because Obamacare just sucks so much. We know Obamacare sucks. It's why you elected Republicans to the House in 2010, 2014. It's why we elected Trump to the presidency. We get it. Like, that's that's— I guess the case here is that you leave it in place, it's going to spiral down and collapse of its, own, of its own accord. There's two possible ramifications for that. One is the American people want more free market intervention. The other is that they want more government. When government programs fail, there is a tendency in America for people to say, I want more government programs to fix the government program that failed. And that's sort of what Obama was always banking on. The idea that Obamacare was always going to be a working, thriving system is just not true. It was always bound to fail because the bottom line is you were going to get a lot of doctors who weren't going to accept Obamacare premiums. They weren't going to accept the insurance plans that Obama was pushing forward. It was already in a death spiral. Insurers were pulling out. And so the next step for Democrats was going to be the Bernie Sanders plan, which was basically nationalized health care. So- Playing with fire here is a very risky business. If you don't repeal Obamacare and it fails, you could very well end up with a Democrat being elected with a Democrat Congress next time around who decides that he's going to push through nationalized health care in total, just nationalize the entire system. That's definitely a possibility. Plus, you know, the idea that Obamacare is inherently going to fail, fail for whom? It fails for people like me. I'm employed. But it doesn't fail for all the people who are on Medicaid. I mean, the whole problem with entitlement programs Republicans have always had is when you leave an entitlement program in place, it continues to expand because more people rely on the entitlement program. The more people who rely on entitlement program, the more people vote Democrat, the more people vote left. Even people who vote Republican get sucked into this. I remember a few years back, I was speaking in Florida, and uh, there was a senator at the time she was running for governor named Linda Lingle. Uh, actually, she was the governor of Hawaii, rather, and she was running for senator, Linda Lingle. And she was speaking in Palm Beach, and she gave a speech about entitlements, and some little old lady wearing pearls and a very expensive dress toddled up to her and she said, Are you going to cut my Social Security? And I thought to myself, Lady, you don't even need Social Security. But she did because it was a government program upon which she was reliant. Obamacare is a subsidy program. It is a government program that people are becoming reliant upon. Leaving that in place and assuming it's going to fail seems to me a fool's errand. So, again, Republicans should be held to account. They made a promise. They should keep the promise. And I'm rather upset, as you can tell today, by the fact that their attempt to keep the promise is basically re Obamacare. Meanwhile, Democrats— are, are continuing to flounder about for a message. They're trying to claim that the, the Trump care plan is actually cruel to the poor, that it's, that it's just helping the rich people. They're basing this on the idea that there is a tax provision that is repealed. It, Obamacare contains some taxes on the wealthy, and the repeal of Obamacare would get rid of some of those taxes on the wealthy. So Democrats are playing the class warfare game here. They're saying that Republicans just want to screw the poor people. They do this routine all the time. Nancy Pelosi uses the, the infamous phrase, this is Robin Hood in reverse.
2: The Republican bill is one of the largest transfers of wealth from working families to the richest people in our country. Robin Hood in reverse. The richest 400 families in America will get a $7 million tax break each year to tune up $2.8 billion break every year. Uh, It's six hundred billion dollars moving from the middle working class families uh, to the richest
1: families. Yeah, that's such crap. The richest families are not taking money from the working class. The richest families are just paying less in taxes. That is their own money. But I just want to point out something. The Democrat playbook is so hackneyed; They've got nothing new in this playbook. It is always the same stuff. She says Robin Hood in reverse. Here is a little trip down memory lane of, you know, another new idea the Democrats have had for the last 10 years. Oh, yeah, it's called Robin Hood in reverse.
2: This is a Robin Hood proposal in reverse. The Robin Hood principle in reverse.
1: Reverse Robin Hood approach.
0: Not just the usual Robin Hood in reverse. Robin Hood slamming the Batmobile into reverse at 100 miles per hour.
1: Okay, and you could go on like this. Robin Hood in reverse has been a favorite Democratic talking point for years. Of course, the Democrats ignore the fact that Robin Hood actually stole from the government to return money to the taxpayers. He wasn't stealing from the rich to give to the poor. He was stealing from the government. He was stealing from Prince John. Right to, to, to give the money back to the taxpayers. But the Democrats don't know what to do with this, so they're going to proclaim that, re, that Republicans are, are horrible to the poor. The problem for Republicans here is that, again, once you get into the game of saying government is supposed to take care of people, Democrats will always win that game. Democrats are always willing to spend more money on that. Democrats are always willing to do more things to give people crap in order to buy votes. And so this is a mistake by Republicans. That said, the Democrats are pretty hackneyed. And and they don't even know what to do at this point. I mean, a lot of their spokespeople are just more and more delusional. Maxine Waters, representative from California, she's still hung up on the on that old Buzzfeed dossier about Trump. She's still saying that that Trump was peed on by Russian by Russian prostitutes. I mean, that, that's how desperate Democrats are at this point.
0: Oh, I think it should be uh, taken a look at. I think they should really read it, understand it, analyze it, and determine what's fact, what may not be fact. We already know that the part about uh, the coverage that they have on him uh, with sex actions uh, is supposed to be true. Uh, They've said that that's absolutely true. Some other things they kind of allude to. Yes, I think he should go into that dossier and see what's there. You say, you know, you think yeah, yeah. them to be true. Um, how are we all going to find out what is true and what isn't true? I mean, does it help that you think so? Because unless you have information that we don't have, that's an allegation. Yeah, but, but, but you understand that I am saying the investigations must be done. The drilling down must be done. We must get to the facts of what it has been about.
1: Okay, I just want to point something out here. There are no facts to support this. As I discussed yesterday, there is no evidence to suggest at this point that Donald Trump was in bed with the Russians, that he was peed on by Russian prostitutes. This is all a bunch of smoke that is generated by the media. It's been going on for six months. I've been waiting for them to materialize any sort of actual content to back it up. You know, suspicious behavior by Trump associates aside, there is no hard evidence that anything happened here. That said, I I, I also want to point out that on the right, can we not engage in conspiracy theories on the right? I'm so sick of conspiracy theories. Let me debunk virtually all conspiracy theories with one line. Most institutions are not that competent. Okay, The number of institutions that can actually engage in a full-blown conspiracy, it's minimal. It's minimal. It's very difficult to engage in a full-blown conspiracy. That's why, you know, there's a report going around today And it's been parroted now by Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity. WikiLeaks put out this report that the CIA has a technology that allows them to hack into places then leave a paper trail blaming it on somebody else. So a bunch of people on the right have now been claiming the CIA actually, it wasn't WikiLeaks, the CIA hacked the DNC database and then blamed it on Russia. This is their new claim, which makes no sense whatsoever. So you're telling me that the CIA, in order to damage Donald Trump, hacked Hillary Clinton's DNC, released all that information and then left a, tra- a, a very tenuous trail of, of breadcrumbs in order so that we could find it six months afterward, two months after Trump's election, three months after Trump's election? Yeah, no. But again, everybody's buying into conspiracy theories now because conspiracy theories seem to give them some sort of comfort in what seems to be an uncertain time. Democrats certainly are not giving them any comfort in, in uncertain time. Bernie Sanders calling Donald Trump delusional is not giving anybody any comfort. Here is Bernie Sanders saying just that yesterday.
2: Wolf, as I'm sure your viewers well know, every other day, uh, President Trump sadly says something which is totally preposterous. Uh, A little while ago, he talked about three to five million people voting illegally in the last election. Total nonsense. Uh, He talked about how he won the Electoral College uh, in a wider margin than any other candidate in recent history. Total nonsense. He saw people celebrating uh, in Jersey, New Jersey, no, it's not uh, going to help that's no, of- no, not
1: going to help the Democrats. What's not going to help the Democrats is sending out a crazy old Kook socialist like Bernie Sanders to call people delusional. Everyone is delusional, except for me. I believe the Soviet Union was wonderful. That is not a delusion. Not going to play folks, not going to play. Okay, so I, I want to have some time for the mailbag, so let's do some stuff I like and some stuff that I hate today. We'll do that early. Um, all right, things that I like. We've been doing spy movies this week. I don't think I've done this movie before. If I have, I apologize, but it's a, it's a terrific film from the 1960s, one of my favorites, great cast. Uh, the movie is Charade, uh, and this is a, a great spy film uh, with uh, Walter Matthau and James Coburn and it, it just an enormous cast, George Kennedy, Cary Grant, Audrey Hepburn, Really a sexy film, really a great score. And, uh, and here's, here's a bit of the film. It's like the best of the 60s. It's, it's, it's really just great, stylish filmmaking. The costumes are great. It's, it's, it's a terrific film. You can check it out, Charade. Okay, now, as, as per our usual arrangement, one second on things I like, and now a crapload of things that I hate. So, things that I hate... So Samantha B is getting hit really hard because she did a segment the other day where she, uh, she accidentally hit a kid with cancer. Like, seriously, she was covering CPAC, and she showed a kid who had what well, looked to be a bizarre haircut, and she basically said the kid had a Nazi haircut. It turns out the kid had stage four cancer, and that's why he had the haircut. Oopsies. Uh, so here is, uh, here's Samantha B covering it.
0: This year, the bow ties were gone, replaced by Nazi hair. Nazi hair. Nazi hair.
1: This kid right there, you can pause it. Um, he has stage four brain cancer. So, yeah, oopsies, oopsie-doopsie. Uh, again, it, it just demonstrates the level of hatred that people on the left have for people on the right, particularly at Comedy Central. Uh, there are some people at Comedy Central who I personally know who don't even understand the level of hatred they have for people on the right. Everybody on the right must be a Nazi. Everybody on the right must be a terrible person. Samantha B pulled the segment and apologized, sort of, for doing the segment. She should have apologized for the segment itself, you know, the, the claims that everybody who has that haircut is inherently a Nazi, that's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. There are people on the left who have that haircut, too. There are people on the right who have that haircut who are not Nazis. There are people on the right who have stage four brain cancer who, uh, who have that haircut, obviously. Um, but everybody has to be a Nazi if you're at CPAC, according to Samantha B. Samantha B's real sin here is not failing to do her research. Her real sin here is that she's a terrible host who's really, really unfunny in virtually every way. That's her, that's her terrible sin. And as I've been saying for literally a year now, the, the great battle of our time is between Trevor Noah, Samantha B, and Lena Dunham. And Amy Schumer is like on the edges, but she's a little more funny. The other three, I think there's a, a battle royale as to who is the unfunniest human being on planet Earth. Okay, other things that I hate. Dan Savage is back. This guy is a sex columnist for the Seattle Stranger, uh, and he has been called an anti-bullying advocate. Actually, Dan Savage is one of the worst bullies in America. Uh, he bullied Christian kids at one of his speeches when they got up and walked out. He started yelling at them. Uh, he is, uh, He's somebody who said that back in 2000, he licked doorknobs to try and infect Gary Bauer with the flu because Gary Bauer was, quote-unquote, anti-gay. Uh, Dan Savage is a really nasty character. He went after Melania Trump the other day. But forgive me, I have got to get this off my chest hate melania trump i'm not alone in loathing donald trump's third wife she's married to a misogynist after all odds are good her husband hates her too but there are some folks on the left who not only don't hate her
0: they view her as some sort of sympathetic figure the pretty princess in the tower locked up by the orange ogre with the bad comb over a princess desperately blinking out distress signals during swearing-in ceremonies and inaugural balls I think we can credit that undeservedly charitable view of our new first lady to our propensity as
2: humans, as a species, to think that the insides of pretty people match the outsides of pretty people.
1: Uh, Again, I don't know what evidence he has that Melania Trump is really such a horrible human being. I don't know much about Melania Trump. You don't know anything about Melania Trump either. But again, it has to be that she's a horrible human being because she is married to Donald Trump. Which would suggest, by the way, that Hillary Clinton is a pretty horrible human being since she's married to Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton is a similarly horrible human being since he is married to Hillary Clinton. The idea that everybody who's married to a person who's bad is a horrible human being, you know, I don't necessarily buy it, and I certainly don't buy that that he has any evidence whatsoever for his hatred of Melania Trump other than— the, the seething hatred that infuses people like Samantha B and Dan Savage does not have boundaries at the rational. It doesn't have boundaries at the evidentiary. And that's really ugly. Okay, other things that I hate. Um, Stan Lee, for, for women, International Women's Day, he tweeted out a copy of The Superhero Women by Stan Lee. And he said, remember to celebrate some of our greatest heroes on International Women's Day and every day. And it's like, and it's a bunch of the superheroes. I can't remember all of their names here. The the, the girl from the Fantastic Four, uh, and uh, a bunch of his other superheroes that he did. And they're superheroes in a comic book, and obviously this cover is from you know the 1980s. And they're all buxom because if you've ever read a comic book, all of the women are incredibly buxom. Like if you've ever seen a graphic novel, they never have like fat, dumpy women. They're all beautiful women who are incredibly buxom. And if their proportions were actually like that, in real life would fall over from being top heavy. Okay, so and the entire left lost their minds. The entire left decided that this was the end of the world. All hourglass figures. Diversity would be great. Not just hourglass figures. They are all the same person, only with different hair and clothes color. Why are they all at least a C cup? This is what people are tweeting at Stan Lee. A few superhero, a few superhero women of color wouldn't hurt. this another one of those tweets. Uh, and again, it's just demonstrative of the fact that intersectionality is the stupidest philosophy that ever happened. He's trying to honor women and say that women are great. I don't think the point that he was trying to make is big boobs are great. But everybody on the left says, what the women look like is the key. The fact that they all look pretty and have big boobs, that means that it's not representative of all women. Okay, you try selling a comic book based on the premise of some really overweight, boxy-looking person and see how well that does, okay? It's, it's a little harder than it looks, and again, I don't see anything particularly wrong with comic books that feature women people like to look at. Again, it's it, it's just, it's so stupid. Pretending that there's no standard of beauty in American society that applies to the culture. Okay, why is it that when all of these beautiful actresses tweet out pictures of themselves on International Women's Day, nobody says, well, look at you, all beautiful. Why don't you tweet out a picture of your ugly maid? You know, <laughs> it just, it's so silly, but again... When, when all that you care about is the idea that what people look like on the outside is the important thing, you end up with the the belief that if it's not perfectly represented, like the cover of a college diversity photo, uh, then you've done something deeply, deeply wrong. Hey, final thing that I hate, and then we'll get to the mailbag. Uh, Reza Aslan is uh, is a not-deep thinker who people think is a deep thinker. And uh, he is doing this show where he goes around and talks about different religions. He actually ate human brain with uh, with some people who are Hindu, some kind of fringe Hindu folks in India. Uh, He does this religion miniseries, Believer, on CNN, and here is him meeting with this obscure Hindu sect called the Aghoris.
0: The Aghor believe that God lives within you, and if God lives within you, then nothing you do can defile you. A very small movement, mostly of ascetics, prove this belief by taking part in ostentatious displays of defilement. They will cover themselves in the ashes of the dead. They will eat rotted corpses. They will drink their own urine. Oh my goodness. They will sleep within the cremation grounds. It's an idea that's very difficult for everyday Indians to take part of.
1: What? And then Razit Aslan actually ate part of a human brain and said, we want to know what a dead guy's brain tastes like? Charcoal. It was burnt to a crisp. That is horrifying. Okay, It's horrifying in a couple of ways. First of all, there's this idea when people go and do these shows that we are going to be non-judgmental. We're just here to just show what's out there. If you're not judgmental about people smearing themselves with human cremation remains and eating rotted corpses, I'm going to go with you're a moron. You should be judgmental about that, because honestly, it's okay as a human being to have standards of decency and standards of... of I know this is a word that's going on our style, but standards of purity, standards of civility, standards of don't eat rotting corpses, you idiot. What's wrong with you? Standards of don't smear yourself with the ashes of the dead guy. right? If, if I can't look down on cultural practices that involve eating the brains of other deceased human beings, uh, then... I'm going to go with civilization is finished. Civilization is the idea that you must be civilized and that there are higher and lower levels of civilized society and civilized people and civilized cultures. And if you are engaged in this sort of thing as, as your religion, I'm going to go with that's not a religion that civilized people should engage in. And maybe that's politically incorrect. I don't care. If we can't draw the lines you need in human brains, you can't draw any lines at all, and that's how you end up with the multiculturalism that's currently destroying the West from the inside, suggesting that there's no difference between cultures. Okay, time for the mailbag. Glenn says, why does the left hate the military? Why would they not want to have the best army and nuclear in the world? We are supposed to be the world power and protect democracy. We can't do that with a weak army. So, Glenn, folks on the left are under the bizarre impression that if we build up our military, that's what drives bad people to hate us. That if we would just get rid of our military, everybody would see how well-meaning we are, and suddenly they would all be very nice. This is belied by actual history and fact and evidence. Okay, if Israel were to lay down all of its guns right now, for example, it would immediately be overrun by its Arab neighbors, and they would destroy it. Uh, and the idea that you don't have to protect yourself... Let's see a bunch of lefties unlock their doors at night and disarm themselves in a high crime neighborhood to see whether it's really the gun and the, and the lock that are, that are making people angry at them or whether people just want to take advantage of other people. But the left has this bizarre view of human nature, that human beings are automatically good in a state of nature. It springs from kind of this Rousseau noble savage routine. Uh, and therefore, if we were in a state of nature and there are no weapons, then everybody would be hunky dory. Bunch of nonsense. Prehistoric times were significantly more violent uh, than, than modern history, even including the weapons of mass destruction. Spencer says, hey, Ben, I love you with all my heart. Two questions. Well, thank you, Spencer. Is it more important to fight the left or to grow the right? Will liberals ever concede that capitalism is a fairer system than socialism? So I think that you grow the right by fighting the left. I don't think that it's just a matter of you grow the right by promulgating your ideology. I think you have to debunk the opposing side's ideology. It's not just enough to say capitalism is great. You have to explain why it's moral and why its opposition is immoral. This is one thing Trump is very good at. He's very good at picking enemies and polarizing those enemies and talking about those enemies. I don't think he always has the right enemies. I don't think that he always promulgates the right ideology. But if you actually want to win, you do have to fight the ideology that's attempting to destroy your own. Marianne writes, what what do you think the solution is to alcoholism and poverty on native reservations? The question stumps me because of the legality of control over their land. I mean, the solution is really a cultural one. People should you know, be encouraged to leave reservations and engage in the general society if they wish to. Native American reservations, I understand the attempt to preserve a cultural heritage. I also understand that Native American reservations significantly lag in educational attainment. They significantly lag in terms of job prospects. They significantly lag in terms of crime. Uh, Anything that allows people to escape downtrodden areas is something I'm for, and that's not restricted to Native reservations. If you're living in a high-crime area, the best thing that we can as a society do for you is make it easier for you to move out of those areas. Carla is writing in live. She says, My liberal friend said race is a social construct. Is this true, or are there biological differences between races? I've always thought there's some biology behind it. Okay, so this is kind of an interesting idea. Race is a social construct to the extent that there are hard lines between race. So there are ethnic differences in terms of, for example, athletic performance. So this is why you'll see people from Kenya who are great long-distance runners. Right? That's why some people are born taller from different parts of the world or born with different colors of skin. But the idea that race is inherently connected to broad biological critiques, particularly in the brain, there's not a lot of evidence to support this. The idea that a black person is inherently different from a white person, that is a social construct. And the way you can see that that's a social construct is that how do you determine what somebody who's one-quarter black is? right? If somebody had one grandparent who was black, is that person black or white? So... In the olden days, you know, speaking, you know, like the 1920s, 1930s, people would say that that person was a quote unquote quadroon, and then they would say that person is black, right? They have a black grandparent that has tainted the bloodline. That is a total social construct. There's no evidence, no evidence whatsoever, to suggest that a black grandparent taints the, the bloodline or anything like that. The fact is that race is entirely malleable in terms of genetics. Uh, I mean people crossbreed all the time uh, from being from different racial areas. Uh, there's actually more racial differ- there's actually more biological differentiation but within races than there is between races. So in other words, if you take the average black person and the average white person, they're probably more similar genetically than to black people from different parts of the world, for example. So the idea that that skin color, which is what people usually associate with race, skin color is somehow indicative of some deep biological difference with people of another skin color, that is a social construct. It's certainly much more of a social construct than gender. Uh, Ben writes, Hey Ben, as a conservative with a young family in L.A., In one of the most liberal cities and one of the most liberal states in the country, do you have any insights on the positives and negatives of living and raising children in an environment that often seems outright hostile to your beliefs and values? It's a lot more difficult. It means that you have to be very careful when you raise your kids that they are not only protected from a lot of left influences, but that they also know how to fight the left influences. The good news is it makes your kids into fighters. The bad news is there's more of a chance that they're going to be seduced by the dark side. So, you know, these are these are these are absolutely offs. Michael says, Ben, you've often spoken of incentivizing men to stay committed in relationship to help in the raising of their children. What vehicles would you suggest to foster this action? Well, so, first of all, I think that social stigma is actually a very powerful vehicle. I think that men who abandon their families should immediately be treated badly by the rest of the community. Uh, that doesn't mean that the government should treat them badly, but it means that if you know somebody's bad in their family, then you shouldn't be inviting them over for dinner. You shouldn't be friends with them. You should actually try to incentivize good behavior, and you should try to teach kids that this behavior is unacceptable. Not every behavior is acceptable. Also, it is not – I think that the chief thing that incentivizes men to stay committed to, to women is women telling men that they have to. Uh, And so one of the things that has to happen here is women have to say to men, look, I'm not going to have sex with you until we are married. I'm not going to get pregnant with you until we are married. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to allow you to escape responsibility by impregnating me and running off. One of the great tragedies of American society is that as premarital sex has become ubiquitous, uh, and pregnancy, premarital pregnancy has actually gone down in some ways. Uh, the, the fact is that premarital, the, the percentage of births that are taking place out of wedlock are incredibly high, because if premarital sex is a higher percentage of all sex, you would assume premarital pregnancy is a higher percentage of all pregnancy, uh, and therefore you end up with a lot of unwed mothers. And that is the single greatest indicator of intergenerational poverty in the United States, Bottom line is, sex, staying with somebody, these are individual decisions. The only way to incentivize it is to participate in individual decision-making that makes your life better. So, ladies, it is incumbent on you to say to men that you're not going to get what you want unless we get married. And men, it is incumbent for you to stick around, or otherwise that makes you a bad human being. How should a government—this is Ali and Glory—how should a government deal with an economic crisis such as the crash in 2008— Is government intervention necessary to ensure the flow of currency? So one of the big problems with the crash of 2008 is that because the government was already so deeply involved in the economy, that meant that if the government now did not bail out all of these systems that were dependent on each other and on the government, that there was likely to be a a freeze on the credit markets and all of these businesses would not be able to get the short-term loans they needed to remain in business, even though they were fully viable business with a market. Uh, the, the only way to, to deal with a crisis is to stop it before it happens, which means you actually have to dismantle a lot of the governmental structures that prevent... People from doing their own homework on the banks that they are borrowing from uh, that prevent people from that when people rely on the SEC to make sure that everything's okay. They don't do the proper research on stocks, for example. When people rely on the government to make sure the real estate market is fair, they don't read their real estate contracts. There's a lot of moral hazard in the markets, and that means that when there's a crash, the government has to step in in order to fix it. So. Let's say that the government had not done the bailouts. Let's say they had not bailed out Lehman, all, the, all the other firms. They didn't bail out Lehman Brothers. But they, if they hadn't bailed out AIG, for example, there definitely would have been a chain effect that would have taken down a lot of businesses, no question. no question about it. Now, the other possibility is that you let a bunch of other stakeholders come in and buy up AIG and divvy it up and assume the assets. But in the short term, a lot of people lose their jobs. That's why it's important in more prosperous times like this one to deregulate in order to place responsibility where it belongs so next time there's a crisis, it doesn't infect the entire system. Again, the more you rely on government, the more the entire system is interconnected with these governmental rules that when they fail require more governmental rules. Michael says, well, actually, let's see. Micah says, what effect does social media have on violent protesting? Could it possibly encourage violent protesting through a sort of virtual mob mentality or by giving protesters praise and publicity? Yes, absolutely. If if there is more praise for violent protests, there will tend to be more violent protests, obviously. Uh, And that's why it's incumbent on everybody to speak up against that sort of nonsense. Morris says, and then we'll make this the last one, if the government is going to use my money to fund something I fundamentally believe to be immoral, is it not better for me to take the penalty of not giving taxes rather than to indirectly be paying for something I believe is immoral? Well, you know, I think that that's a decision— that you have to make not only on a moral level, but also on a utilitarian level as well. That's suggesting that the best possible solution at this point is to withhold your cash and go to jail. I'm not sure that the best service to your family is to go to jail at this point, rather than attempting to affect political change so that your money is not used for the things that you don't want it to be used for. Uh, It is a difficult moral question. If if the government is compelling you to participate in something that violates your religion, for example, do you have the moral responsibility to go to jail? Or compelling you to to violate your beliefs, do you have the moral responsibility to go to jail? I'm not sure that you have the moral responsibility to go to jail if it is more effective to defeat those policies and make life better and freer for everyone by staying out of jail and ensuring that that you are able in the end to make sure that more people are not violated by government in this fashion. Okay, we have reached the end of the week. We'll be back on Monday. Try not to ruin things while I'm gone. It seems like every weekend something gets ruined, but try not to ruin everything. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free...